LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Philip Coggan, who joins us to discuss his book, Money, Debt and the New World Order. In today's financial climate, we are all, naturally, obsessed by debt. In almost every aspect of our life, we experience it on our credit cards, mortgages, bank loans and student loans. But where has this debt come from and how does it work? What is any money really worth and what promises do we need to believe to keep the whole system afloat? In a fascinating look at money through the ages, including our own unstable future, Philip examines the flawed structure of the global finance systems as they exist today and asks, with deeper imbalances that the world is currently facing, what's actually at stake? Hello and welcome, Philip, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Philip, today we're going to talk about the nature of money, the state of the world economy, amongst other things, much of which we discussed in your book, Paper Promises, uh, subtitled Money, Debt and the New World Order. Perhaps to launch into this, we could just say some general things. I mean, over the ages, money has been many things. It was gold and silver for millennia. And then more into the modern age, it was backed by gold and silver. Then it was sort of somewhat backed by gold and silver, and now essentially is no longer associated with it at all. And when the link between precious metals and, and fiat money was lost, there was an explosion in the amount of money in circulation, paper money, electronic money, uh, all crucially, most of it anyway, created as debt. This pumped into the system, but always has to be paid back with interest. And it's this background that has led essentially, uh, it is at the root of the current crisis we're now experiencing. Yes, uh, I'd just like to clarify that it doesn't all have to be paid back with interest. Of course, notes and coins are notionally backed by the British government. If, if we didn't believe the British government was going to survive, then we wouldn't use their notes and coins. Um, but they don't have to pay any interest on them. It's free money for governments. But yes, the vast bulk of money, uh, the money that we use that comes from the banks, which are the ones who create most of our money, that is um, debt in the sense that it's a liability of the bank. Well, I suppose a lot of people have an, an idea that you know they're familiar with the notes and coins in their pockets and in their wallets, uh, but they maybe don't realise how small a percentage that is of the money supply. Exactly. It's a, it's a few percentage points at most. The vast majority of money exists really in electronic form. So every time you or I buy a good uh, over the internet, a book or shopping from Sainsbury's or whatever, um, it's just a transfer from one bank account to another, and this has shown up, you know, most notably with quantitative easing, this policy that central banks have been pursuing in the last few years, in which uh, when they buy bonds, they credit the bank account of the seller with new money. 
So it's it's like a sort of benign computer hacker has got into your account and added some zeros to it. Um, and you know that money is as good as anybody else's money, as good as um, a, a pound, a five pound note, or a, a one pound coin, or indeed a, a gold bar in terms of, of buying stuff in the shops. Now, over the ages, money has evolved various distinct roles, um, principally as a medium of exchange, um, a unit of account, and also a store of value. And it seems that these have often competed against each other in certain ways. That they're not always complementary, depending on what the the creator or issuer of money really intends it to be. Yes, it's a central point of my book. So um, I think the two primary purposes are the means of exchange and the store of value. Unit account is, is useful, but if you think about um, the means of exchange, if, if next time we queue from a Starbucks, if you, you had to persuade the lady to listen to your podcast or I had to give them a, a lecture on the outlook for the financial markets, uh, it would be a very slow uh, process of exchanging goods. So having some medium that we can use to um, replace barter is very helpful. And, of course, the more of that money we had around, the better. So if you want the means of exchange function to triumph, then you want to create more money. But if you want the store of value function to triumph, then you want to limit the amount of money. Because, obviously, if I could bring in the money from my kids' monopoly set uh, to Starbucks every day, I could buy you know, everybody in the office a coffee and have, still have lots of money left. Um, but Starbucks would pretty much pretty soon get sick of taking my monopoly money. So um, over history, we've had periods when we've had you know, rapid expansion of um, the money supply and other periods we've had uh, a restriction on the amount of money that being cre- can be created. Uh, and it's a cycle. You know, at times when there isn't enough money around, people are urging more money to be created. And at times when um, there's too much money, people are arguing that you know, central banks need to get a grip and control the process. And you know, every so often we get to go through one of these crisis periods, and this has been one in the recent years. Now, I've talked to a great many members of the public about the nature of money and everything that kind of extends from that. And they're aware of government borrowing because they hear about it in the mainstream media, the need to, to get it down or the need to increase it to fulfill some function. Um, they also understand governments engaging in quantitative easing. They perhaps don't understand the process. But again, that's in the mainstream media. Then... They see pictures of the Queen on coins and notes in this country anyway, they do. And they appreciate that comes from the government or is at least sanctioned by them. And in general, there seems to be a confusion about where government gets its money from, who it owes this money to, and where the people or institutions it borrows the money from, where they get it. Yes, well, you're right. Well, the the vast bulk of um, the government's money, of course, comes from the taxes that they raise from you and I, income tax. VAT, um, of course, they have other taxes on corporate profits and so on. Um, but in the height of the financial crisis of 2009, one in four of the amount of money that one in four pounds that the government spending were being borrowed um, from the financial markets, and um, a lot of that money comes from people at home. So the pension funds that we might have through our companies, they buy government bonds. They lend money to the government. Insurance companies do so, uh, and also foreign investors and very sophisticated investors like hedge funds, and for example. But in the recent years, because of this thing called quantitative easing, the biggest buyer of single buyer of government bonds has been the central bank itself. So we're in this sort of bizarre process where the government 
uh, issues debt and then another arm of the government um, buys it up and one bit of the government pays interest to another bit of the government and indeed in the last year or so the Treasury has asked for the interest back. Um, so even more Alice in Wonderland style, that, that return of interest has been counted as a reduction in the government deficit. So we're we, not surprised that people find this fairly confusing because we've entered a very new period of monetary policy where it's, uh, it is very confusing. Now, particularly in the, the current age we're living in, we're all encouraged to live within our means. The government's inability to do this, I mean, what's the history of this? Is this a relatively modern phenomenon or can we look back in history and, and see the same thing happening. And what essentially would be, if the government suddenly had to start living within its means, what would the actual effects be? Well, it's a very ancient phenomenon indeed. Monarchs um, always found it difficult to raise taxes from their citizens, but always had the need to spend money often on military adventures, wars, or you know, on their castles. Um, and... Um, Monarchs could often fall because they um, failed to raise enough money and uh, impose, tried to impose too high taxes on their populations. Uh, monarchs would often abuse the currency. So the classic thing of the Roman emperors would be to, um, if they didn't have enough money to pay their troops, they'd be in real trouble. So they would take all the silver coins, melt them down, um, add some copper or lead. Then they'd have more coins uh, and they could afford to pay their troops. But over time, of course, the silver content of the coins fell quite sharply. So they went from being pure coins, pure silver in 70 AD to only 4% um, silver by 270 AD. So they became the equivalent of today's, you know, two and one P coins. Um, and governments in modern times have generally financed themselves more often by deficits than, than exactly balancing the budgets. Um, and that's one reason why we have very high levels of debt relative to the size of our economy at the moment, because of the the legacy of past deficits by governments. Now, what happens if they try and balance the budget overnight is obviously they have to raise taxes or cut spending. Cutting spending means usually uh, people being thrown out of work that work for the government or lower benefits for the people who receive income from the government. So that's quite bad for the economy because those people um, buy fewer goods and that means less jobs for workers. If they raise taxes, of course, people are paying more of their money to the government and have less money available to buy goods. And again, that means fewer jobs from workers. So the danger of a, a government that tries to balance its budget um, too quickly or in the teeth of um, an economic downturn is that they make the economic downturn worse. And if the economic downturn is worse, then taxes will be lower and they'll probably still have a deficit at the end of it all. So that's really essence of the current debate between the Labour and Conservative parties as to how fast should the government cut its deficit and Labour Party arguing that by cutting it too fast they've led to a very slow um, economic recovery. So those in favour of shrinking the state, I mean this is a particularly significant movement in the US with the Tea Party um, yeah. groups for example, I mean are they simply a bit, not so much misguided but do they see the thing, the situation rather too simplistically as just we, you know, we slash government spending and you know the, the debt comes down and our problems are solved? Yes, I think they often are too simplistic. I mean, I think there's a genuinely good argument to make that in the long run, if the government forms a very large part of your economy, that it's likely to be less efficient. So Sweden, which was a prime example of the social democratic uh, consensus and a very high level of government spending, uh, got up to nearly 70% of um, GDP, economic output, 
20 years ago, and they've gone through a long period of cutting back, um, brought it down to um, still quite high levels in the 50s percent um, these days. But as a consequence of that, they've managed to improve their economic growth record and indeed got through the financial crisis rather better than many other countries. So there's clearly some limit to the amount of government spending that you can have. But um, in the short run, the, the danger is that tea, the Tea Party people tend to think that there's lots of waste um, to be eliminated from government spending when uh, one man's definition of waste is another man's definition of a vital benefit or all too often. Um, and again, similarly, they people on the left often believe that if you just tax the rich a bit more, then you'll be able to balance the budget. Well, unfortunately, rich people can move their capital out of the country. If you tax the rich too much, they usually avoid the taxes or work less hard and just earn less income in the first place. So we would have to face the fact that if you want to cut the deficit significantly, the bulk of people will probably have to pay more in tax or a lot of people will have to suffer in terms of, in terms of lower benefits or losing jobs in the public sector. You mentioned uh, monarchs uh, rising and falling. Um, it seems almost, uh, slightly perverse perhaps, it seems almost in feudal times that, I won't say people were better off as such, but the, the system was a little bit different when you had kings wanting to, um, yes, to tax the peasants, but they couldn't, only so far they could go um, because they were looking to basically hand something on to their, their heirs and this was a very sort of long-term form of thinking and contrast with governments of today which are generally speaking very very short term it's just literally one term to the next and they know that well in a sense they just need to manage whatever crises are currently unfolding until they get to the next election you know maybe they could have got a strategy for trying to win it if they don't then the, the, the ball is passed to you know, between red and blue, and it's their job to just get us through the next four years. And it, that sort of lack of long-term thinking seems to be part of the problem as well. Yes, funnily enough, that is the subject of a, uh, another book I've written on, on the problems of Western democracies. But you're um, right to say that that, that is a, uh, a modern issue to do with the short-term nation, nature of government terms and the fact that our children don't have a vote, so we can leave them large debts and they have to wait until they're 18 to vote to do something about it and of course those the unborn children don't get um, any chance at all to register their protest it's very difficult to know what's to be done about it because um, of course for the last 50 or 60 years by and large things have worked out so governments have got into deficit economies have then grown the deficit has disappeared, the debt has fallen relative to the size of the economy and things have moved on. Why it's a particular problem right now is that throughout the developed world, the baby boomers who were born between 1946 and 1964 are getting ready to retire. So we will have fewer workers and it's very hard to make the economy grow fast if you have fewer workers. So we have all that debt and the prospects are fairly limited economic growth going forward and as a consequence of that it's hard to see that debt being eliminated in the benign way that it was eliminated in past cycles so that that leaves us with some fairly um, unpleasant choices which I describe as uh, inflate stagnate or default so uh, you can do what the old monarchs used to do you can um, debase the currency so essentially mean you're you're paying back the debt with funny money monopoly money if you like by having rapid rates of inflation you can be like Japan, where you've had this same problem of demography, a aging population, 
and to virtually no economic growth for 20 years. And they've got away with it because they owe the money to their own citizens. But um, countries like the UK, which owe money to foreigners, it's, it's um, not as easy to pull off the same trick. Or you can just default on the debt, say, well, we're not going to pay it back, which is what Greece has done, for example. And um, that has some dangerous consequences in that if you anger your foreign creditors, then um, they will be less willing to lend you money in future so that you may find your ability to spend or, or borrow from the market strictly limited. Now, some people who've been opposed to or are resistant to um, their own governments, their own countries being in hoc to uh, foreigners and always characterised as quote-unquote greedy foreigners or mm-hmm. foreign banks, corporations, whatever it happens to be, they've pointed out that you know governments can create their own money debt-free, a bit like, as we alluded to earlier, the, uh, the actual sort of hard currency, the coins and notes yeah. are created. And it does seem quite alluring on the face of it as, you know, why not do this? Uh, but, of course, there's potential hazards in this uh, in allowing government control over money creation. Famous examples, Weimar Germany, um, yeah. more recently in Zimbabwe. But has that ever been successfully done and managed, or does it tend to always end, go in one direction and end in, if not disaster, then at least unintended consequences? Well, that's a sort of 64 billion question right now. Um, there aren't really any examples in history of um, governments doing the kind of thing they've been doing in recent years, or rather, I should say, central banks doing it, of buying a lot of government debt without it ending disastrously. But that's not to say that it can't succeed this time round. And you have to say we've had four years of governments buying, uh, so central banks buying government bonds without creating the kind of inflation that uh, Germany experienced in the 1920s or anything like it. We still have very low inflation. So what's the explanation for that? Well, the, as I was saying right at the start of this um, interview, um, it's not just governments that create money. The vast bulk of money is created by the banks. So to, to the extent that um, central banks are creating money via this quantitative easing, Banks are shrinking the balance sheet, which essentially means destroying money um, by lending less and calling in old loans. So if you think of it like a bath, if the central banks have turned the taps on, then the commercial banks have pulled the plug out. And and the result is there's been a sort of um, balance between the two forces. Um, But a consequence of that is that we've not really done any of the things that um, I suggested would be a way to get out of the crisis. So we haven't inflated away the debt. We haven't raised wages rapidly, so it's easier for people to pay their mortgages, for example. And nor have we defaulted on the debt. We still owe pretty much uh, as much as we did before the crisis, albeit the government owes a bit more and the private sector owes a bit less. But as a country as a whole, we owe pretty much the same amount. Um, So, um, you know, that's why the, the crisis lingers on. And we still have to have a situation where the central bank is committed to zero interest rates for at least the next couple of years. And and bear in mind that the Bank of England has existed for over 300 years and never had to have this low level of interest rates through world wars, um, Victorian era of low inflation, the Great Depression, all the rest of it. Never had to cut interest rates until below 2% until four years ago. Now, you won't hear much about this in the mainstream, but I've certainly noted a lot of talk about there being some bond markets being in, in bubble territory, just precisely for the reasons you've pointed out. Yes, there, there is a lot of argument about that. So historically, if you bought um, government bonds on a yield of 2% or below, then you've tended to lose money in real terms. So if you think about it, if um, 
inflation, there's a rule of 72, which is very handy. So if inflation is uh, 8%, you divide your 8 into 72, and you know that your money will, um, prices will double in nine years. So your um, money will halve in value over nine years. So inflation has tended to be a bit more than 2% over history. So if you're just getting 2% on your bonds, then by and large, you, the purchasing power of your money will erode over time, year after year after year. So that's why it's been a bad deal. 1970s was a classic example. Investors who owned government bonds in the 1970s lost a vast chunk of their savings. Um, the difficulty is, whilst that might make government bonds uh, an, an obvious sell, uh, investors have to allow for two things. First, the, the central bank seems willing to buy more government bonds from time to time, and if they buy more, that pushes the price up and the yield down, uh, and so if you're betting on the opposite direction, you may lose out. Uh, the other point is that Japan has been in a situation, as I already pointed out, for going on 20 years now, and it still manages to get by with government bond yields of less than 1%. So if you if you think that this situation must lead to much higher bond yields, you have to explain why we're different from Japan. Now, thinking back to the big financial crash of 07, uh, 08, and Lehman Brothers, which was allowed to fail, apparently, to avoid, quote-unquote, moral hazard, uh, that strategy had to be um, hurriedly rethunk at the time. And in some ways, that was the right thing to do. But all the scrambling around after that um, to change direction really showed us you know, what the situation we're in and how, it's, yes, it's happened before, but it is different this time certainly in scale and complexity. Yes, I mean, the, the figures of debt are just much higher than they were, you know, 40, 50 years ago, and it's debt everywhere. So it's not just that the government has debt. The banks have more debt than they used to. Companies have more debt than, you, than they used to, and individuals have more debt than they used to. So my father, for example, wouldn't have owned a credit card. People who grew up and lived through the 1930s tended not to get into debt, whereas in the modern era, sort of, getting your first credit card is like a rite of passage, sort of um, part of the process of adulthood. People learn to have mortgages, to take out big mortgages on their houses in the 1980s because eventually um, house prices would always go up and, and the gamble would pay off. So we, we've changed our attitudes towards debt quite significantly uh, over the ages. And the difficulty, again, as I say, is if we don't produce economic growth, then that debt's going to hang around and be a burden for us for a very long period. And I think one of the interesting consequences of this crisis is whether there'll be another sort of generational shift in, in attitude. So, you know, in the, in the Victorian era, people were very um, negative towards debt. If you think of Dickens' novels of Mr. Micawber and his annual income, 20 shilling, 20 pounds, annual expenditure, uh, 20 pounds, and sixpence result in misery. So the idea of going to debt always brought you pain. Uh, will, we, will we come back to that? When you, you leave college now, if you're a, a young person, you've already got student debt. So you may be very um, look askant to the idea of taking on credit card debt. Um, and you also might not be able to have enough money to buy a flat because you won't be able to save enough to generate the kind of deposit needed to qualify for a loan these days. So so we may have changed, maybe going through a complete generational change all over again. Yeah, changing attitudes to debt are key, really. It's interesting you mention 
uh, not having a credit card. Certainly, I, I think I got a credit card when I was a student, maybe 20 years ago, because it was thrust at me. You know, there you go, £2,000 to play with, um, as it were. But thinking back to, you know, generations before, I mean, my grandfather always used to say, never, uh, neither a borrower, borrower nor lender be. And one idea I know he would have objected to was the idea of debt being sold. And I've often thought that if we didn't allow debt to be sold or passed on, that would really change things. It sounds hopelessly naive and idealistic, of course, but my grandfather he used to sell carpets and furniture to people in the local community. And there was never, he would sometimes do it on credit, but the money was always owed to him. He said, okay, there's your, there's your three-piece suite. You owe me whatever it would have been at the time, £100 at £5 a week. And he would literally go round once a week to all these individual people, taking five and ten pound notes off them. And that kept things honest. But um, I don't know what you think of the general idea of not selling debt. Well, the problem would be, I suppose, that if you weren't able to get rid of your debt, you'd be much more cautious about the people you'd lend money to. So the ability to, if we're talking about bonds here, the ability to sell a bond and realize um, the proceeds is what persuades many people to invest bonds because they might suddenly you know, have the need for money. Even if it's a pension fund, that might be true if they um, suddenly face some extra costs. Uh, if you were not allowed to sell that bond, uh, then you might not buy it in the first place. And then the cost of borrowing for people who need to uh, raise capital will, will increase. And that would make the economy uh, less productive because um, fewer businesses will get financed if the cost has gone up. So that, that would be my worry. There used to be laws on usury and this is coming up again really with the wonga.com example and those lasted you know for the catholic church and um even in some protestant areas you know for a very long period um but if you look back at the middle ages they were an economically unproductive era very little economic growth uh, one of the reasons for that is that it's very difficult for businesses to get finance and if businesses don't can't get finance they can't grow and uh, the economy can't grow either one of the things if we're talking about the sort of the human element in this and how people's attitudes come into play. Certainly in the wake of the, the financial crash, we were reminded yet again that, that human psychology and emotion and even ide- ideology sometimes play a key role in finance and economics. And that's, it's not always hard-headed and rational, sometimes far from it. And that's not often talked about, in my experience anyway, in debates over this. Well, yes, probably not. I think economists tend to view people as of rational men who um, look to the future and assess all the likely costs and um, and benefits of certain courses of action. But we know that that's not how people are, that they do get exuberant, that they all pile in to buy shares or houses when um, they think the price is going up. It's sort of the opposite of the Harrod sale idea. You know, financial assets are ones that you buy when the price is high, not when the price is low. So that's a particular problem. And then, of course, similarly, people can panic when things are going in the opposite direction. So they, they are desperate sellers when they think the price is going to go down. So, so these waves of um, greed and fear uh, lead to the fluctuations in the market. Uh, and the other thing one has to allow for is that, that you know, when economists assume that people look to the future and um, try and guess what's going to happen, then most people, of course, have no idea, no idea of what's going to happen. And not only do they not know what's going to happen, they don't know the range of probabilities of what's going to happen. So it's it's one thing saying, you know, if I roll a dice, I know I have a one in six chance of it being a three. But uh, what are the chances of the UK economy growing at 2% next year? Is it 20%, 30%, 50%? 
I don't know, you don't know, nobody knows for sure. So uh, it's to make these sort of complex calculations that economists assume is just impossible for most people. So it's not surprising that they get it wrong uh, and that they um, revise their assumptions when they get some sudden piece of news. And that, and that kind of thing can, can send the markets into a tailspin and, of course, sometimes the economy into a tailspin as well. Now, in terms of how we got here, uh, the current crisis, your book sets out very succinctly how over the decades that banking regulation was gradually unpicked. Um, there were all the things that were instituted in the Bretton Woods era that went away. Um, Glass-Steagall, for example, it seems when that was repealed, that was quite significant. And the era of also, also the era of bank managers being, as you point out again in the book, being Captain Mannering type figures, that's completely changed as well. And the whole attitude to finance and investment has changed. And many modern regulators seem to be completely unable to keep on top of the situation. Um, I've got a personal interest in uh, in America. I can't remember the name of the organization. But I think it might be the CFTC, but somebody is supposed to be investigating manipulation in um, commodities markets. And they've been, I don't know what they've been doing, sitting on their hands for years and you know nothing's coming of it. Yes, I think you get a period when the financial sector does very well um, and then the regulators seem to be content uh, it's, it's, the gravy train is good for everybody and standards are loosened and then there's a crisis and standards are tightened all over again. So it happened in the 1930s after the Wall Street crash and during the Great Depression that you had lots of laws introduced in America and finance was clapped down on. And then in the 80s and 90s over here, um, financial regulations were loosened um, Finances made a lot of money. That made everybody assume that they were smart um, and smart people were listened to um, when they lobbied for more changes in regulations. Furthermore, and of course, in America, if you're rich, you can also lobby your congressman um, and get listened to. So again, that helps to loosen regulations. And there was a genuine belief that markets left to themselves would sort themselves out. Um, and that all came down to earth with a bump in 2007, 2008. To be fair to the regulators, they, you know, they are attempting to um, change the rules all over again. So there's a huge, um, and probably too huge, act in the States called the Dodd-Frank Act, which is designed to clamp down on finance. And, and more generally across the world, we've, we're requiring banks to have more capital these days. And if they have more capital, that means that in a crisis, they're less likely to go bust. And we as taxpayers are less likely to have to bail them out. And also, if they have more capital, by and large, um, the, the profits on their sh- that go to their employees will be lower. And we'll see rather less of sort of huge bonuses than we did before. Now, as we've mentioned, uh, interest rates in the U.S. and the U.K. and many other countries um, have been incredibly low now for years. And to the point where it's getting to they're not going to be able to lower them anymore, otherwise we'll be into negative uh, territory and this, of course, is affecting savers greatly. It's affecting their ability to provide for themselves, which is what we're all being uh, enjoined to do. But looking forward, there seems to be no sign that interest rates can be raised. And I hear a lot of pundits saying they will inevitably have to rise, which you know seems logical enough. But what would have to change for that to to be able to happen? Well, I think you need to have much stronger economic growth. You know, the, the little bit of a rebound that we've had that's being discussed at the moment is, is not strong enough. You need to have 3 or 4% annual growth to get interest rates up again. You'd need to have, or alternatively, you need to have much more rapid inflation, sort of um, 
six or seven percent so that the Bank of England would start to panic about inflation getting out of control. Uh, there's not much sign of that at the moment. And as I mentioned in an earlier answer, it's difficult for the economy to grow very fast for very long, given the, uh, the demography and indeed the hangover of the debt crisis in the past. So I think we're stuck with very low interest rates for a very long time. And of course, it has been true in the past that um, in the Victorian era, we had very low interest rates for a very long time. So um, the bizarre period or the, the strange period was the one of the late 80s and early 90s when interest rates were in the double digits. So it's a, that was a real historical anomaly. And we, it, we're only gradually getting used to the idea that um, you're only going to earn, you know, at best a couple of percent on your savings account if you shop, a ha- shop around really hard. Very difficult for, you know, old people and other people relying on their savings really to, to make ends meet in the current circumstances. Well, yeah, and inflation generally might be quite low, but of course there's the, the government's published inflation rate and then there's the actual inflation rate that we experience when we buy things. And there still seems to be some evidence to suggest that a, a real inflation rate is somewhat higher than the government's stated rate. And the reason I mention this is because a lot of rates, that most of it you can get savings rates are actually below that. So effectively, may not be at a great rate, but you're uh, a great uh, speed, I should say, but you're, you're losing money basically by having it in most uh, bank accounts. Yes, you certainly are. Um, but I mean, that's part of the point of um, monetary policy in the first place. Um, central bankers don't want people to save, they want people to spend, and they do want people to borrow. So they're trying to reduce the rate for borrowers, uh, and that inevitably means a reduced rate for savers. Um, so they are the kind of collateral savers, uh, the collateral damage of, of the current um, uh, uh, regime of um, monetary policy uh, and I'm afraid from the point of view of savers um, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon you could say however that you know equity markets have done fairly well in recent years so if you had more of your savings in shares and less in the, the bank then you've probably done a lot better but yeah they, they may well have done better in shares uh, there's also some evidence to suggest that um, in a, whatever by whatever method that um, a lot of uh, quantitative easing money has ended up in the stock market and may, it might be actually somewhat artificially inflated. Yes, I think that's a genuine worry. I mean, the talk that we've had in the um, last six months that the Federal Reserve will reduce the amount of, of, of QE it does. It's a phrase called tapering. It's been the big um, word in the market in the recent months. It does seem to have caused a bit of a wobble in, in the U.S. stock market, but more significantly in in the emerging stock markets of India and Indonesia's. Um, and of course that raises the question of whether the central banks can stop QE altogether or whether you know, if, they, if they do do so, they might cause the markets to collapse, which would bring us back to worrying about you know, the events of 2008 and 2009. So again, uh, we've got into this particular policy of zero interest rates and, and buying assets. It's not so clear how we'll ever get out of it. Now, things are kind of bad in the US at the moment uh, in Britain they've been you know in poor shape in Japan for decades as you point out long before the financial crash happened but in many ways the European Union seems to be the nexus uh, of the crisis uh, because you know it's unlike the US states uh, the United States of Europe doesn't really exist in the same way and within the EU we've seen tremendous problems in Ireland in Spain and Portugal but particularly in Greece which you point out is essentially facing permanent austerity but this reminds us that the the EU at its root is a sort of a political and ideological project. And in econ- economic terms, it was almost certain to fail. 
Yes, I think the, it's not so much the EU as the Eurozone, which was built in to have um, uh, almost to have failure built into it. So uh, the EU as a trade group um, did have a, a strong political um, motivation, which was the idea by locking Germany into the heart of Europe, we'd prevent the world wars and mar the 20th century. And, and you know, we have delivered peace and prosperity for 60 or 70 years, but they, they always wanted to take things further. And you, you can see the appeal of a single currency. Um, I don't know if you traveled to Europe in the years before we had the euro, but you always ended up coming back with some odd bits of Belgian francs and Portuguese escudos, which were no use to anybody in any other country. And it was just making money for foreign exchange traders every time you had to change your money out of pounds into another currency and back again. Um, but the trouble is, if you have a single currency for an area, it only really works very well if it is a, a single country. So in the U.S., if you decide to, um, you don't like living in Massachusetts and you want to go to California, you can hire a truck and drive over there and you can instantly move into a new job and it's the, the same national tax regime, it's the same language, it's the same rules for all um, employees. But uh, it's not true in Europe. I, I couldn't go and be a journalist in Poland because I don't speak Polish and they would recognize I didn't know much about the Polish political system. Um, and vice versa, I suppose, for Polish journalists too. So we also had the problem that different countries had sort of different economic drivers. So by having one interest rate for the whole system, you caused booms in, in house prices in Ireland and Spain, for example, um, whereas there was no boom in Germany. Uh, and the consequence of that also was that you had these huge build-ups in debt in those economies. In the past, when economies had too much debt, they um, and struggled, they devalued their currencies, which is effectively like mini, a mini default on their debt, and you, you all started again. But once you're in a single currency, you can't do that. So um, that's really the cause of the crisis that came up in, in 2010. On the face of it, if it looks like the Eurozone is destined to unravel, or at least to contract, in your experience personally, do you think that the, the, the Euro as a currency will survive? Um, it seems more likely than the, the group of countries as it is staying completely intact. It's been an interesting guess, guessing game all through this crisis. And it was a year or two ago, you'd have thought it more likely to collapse than you do now. So what in effect has happened is that Germany realized that it had various ways of um, paying the bill. Um, it could either have the other countries default, which was a problem for its banks. It could have... Um, default and leave the euro, which would be a big problem for its banks. It could send tax subsidies to the other countries, which the voters wouldn't like, or it would effectively lend those countries cheap money for a long time, which was like a tax subsidy, but it isn't as obvious to the voters. And that's the, the last answer has really been what it's followed. So Germany seems to have recognized that a collapse of the eurozone would be pretty disastrous and is willing to go along um, with subsidies, cheap cheap debt um, for the peripheral economies. The most likely way that it will break up is if the voters in the peripheral economies get fed up with it. So we've already seen in Greece that we had um, around a third of the vote going to either Trotskyite parties or fascist parties. Uh, and you know, if we got maybe in a few years' time, if that gets to 40%, 50%, then the voters will just say enough with this and... Uh, we are leaving the euro of our own accord. 
the, so the big challenge for the Europe is to try and make sure that doesn't happen by reviving uh, those peripheral economies, which will need you know, economic reform policies. But that all makes it very difficult, proposing for economic reforms, which only makes governments popular. So, so this crisis is, is as yet unresolved, and there are, there are still going, going to be a few nasty patches, I think, before we get through it. You also point out in the book that the issue here, obviously there's pers- levels of personal debt and corporate debt are high, but in terms of government debt, it's not just the the, the, the raw figures. There's it's the unfunded liabilities, which are basically future obligations, yeah. t- typically pensions, health care. But as we've noted, you know, governments tend to be ruled by short termism, and therefore not only have they not been metaphorically putting money aside, it seems that some of the uh, funds have actually been raided for for current spending, and this is you know is going to lead to huge problems in future. Because as you point out. The situation will arise that some people are just not going to get paid or they're not going to get the amount they thought they were going to get. Well, we're already starting to see that. Of course, we've had benefit cuts in uh, Britain. We've had a sort of stealth uh, devaluation of um, some pensions whereby people are getting them uprated each year in line with a lower inflation index than they got upgraded, upgraded in line with before, which over the long term will eat into the, the value of their pensions. Um, and you know there are uh, bound to be other ways in which this happens. You cannot both repay your creditors and meet the future promises that you've made to your citizens to to pay all the benefits or to keep taxes down. Um, and so this is why this is a central issue. It's not just a financial issue. It's a key issue, really, for politics over the next 10 or 20 years. That you know you're pitting old against young because the young have got the debts that uh, the older generation have, have left them. You're pitting rich against poor. You're pitting public sector workers against taxpayers. You're pitting one country against another. And um, in the U.S., we see the same battle between Republicans and Democrats, between the Republicans insisting that you cut spending, which they call entitlements, you know, pensions, uh, pay for the jobless health care costs, and the Democrats insisting that you increase taxes. You know, this will be resolved in different ways in different countries. Some countries like France might go in the direction of you know, higher taxes, uh, and other countries like Britain and America might go in the direction of lower spending. In terms of I mean, precious metals, we mentioned earlier, um, they're synonymous with money for eons. And we came off the gold standard, of course, you know, many decades ago. We know what happened after that. But there's certainly a camp now. Well, I suppose they've always been there in some form or other. Um, Austrian types arguing for sound money. Um, but there's also many people who say that going back to some sort of gold standard would be calamitous. It would just basically be impossible. But I've also heard talk about gold somehow becoming involved in the monetary system again in, in, in a formal way. And there's been a lot in the news recently about governments um, buying gold. I mean, you know, the Chinese and the Indians recently created some new legislation around the import of gold. And we've seen Germany wanting to get their gold back from the US and having problems with that. So it just seems that it's it's floating around. It keeps popping up here and there. I mean, do you think there's any prospect of, of gold ever being formally involved again? Involved, I should say again. Well, never say never. I don't think it looks very likely at the moment because it would require governments sort of tying themselves to the mast and avoiding the, the potential to inflate their way out of the debt, which, which is a, a very tempting option. Um, there, you know, I've had debates about this with various gold enthusiasts, and one of the classic lines that they say is that all um, paper money systems have um, 
devalued themselves to zero, that they've all failed in the past. Well, of course, it's not quite true because we've had a paper money system for several decades now and it hasn't completely disappeared. Whereas the one thing we do know is that uh, all no country is now on the gold standard. So all gold standards have broken down in the past. is definitely a statement you can make. And why do they break down? It's because, going right back to the start of the interview, if you restrict the value of money, which is what, uh, restrict the supply of money, which is what a gold standard does, then at certain times this will bite very hard. And it tends to bite very hard on the poorer people in society. And that um, was fine as far as the creditors were concerned in the 19th century before we had mass democracy. But once you had mass democracy, the people wouldn't simply wouldn't put up with it. So in the 1930s, which was the first great example that one country after another faced with the prospect of continuing depression and hang and accompanying uh, with continuation of the gold standard said, you know, to hell with it, we're going off the gold standard. And once they went off the gold standard, they found they managed to survive quite well without it. So the only way I think in which a gold standard would return is if we did get into the situation of hyperinflation in the future and people said, well, the only way to restore confidence in money is to link to gold again. Um, and that, I'm not saying that couldn't happen. It's all, it is possible. Um, but at the moment, it doesn't look imminent, that's for sure. The one thing you mentioned in your book, which I rarely hear mentioned in any talk about the financial crash or the world economy or how we got here or where we're going, is the issue of energy. And yes. the endless growth model, which basically, you know, the, the modern industrial economies have been based on, uh, well, it's, it's impossible to maintain. And money itself has become detached from actual physical resources that we have. And long time ago, land was factored out of economic equations. Um, but we're now hitting some hard limits in terms of the natural world and resources. And there are emerging energy crises on a number of fronts. Um, even the peak oil theory, whether you subscribe to it or not, is becoming more and more talked about. It's virtually a conspiracy theory in some circles. But the bottom line is, I think it's really significant that you, you brought energy into the equation. Yes, though I have to say that since I wrote the book, um, the uh, sheer abundance of, of shale gas in particular um, makes my view less strong than it, than it was at the time. So the, the central point is, it's not really that, there, that we're at peak oil, um, but we do discover new sources of oil. You know, we may discover quite a lot under the Arctic, for example, um, and there's in a big field off Brazil, for example. But the, uh, the places where we discover oil, it's more expensive to get the oil out than it was before. Um, and so the physicists talk of this equation of you know, the energy output relative to energy input. So when you were getting oil out of the ground in Saudi Arabia, it basically sort of bubbles very quickly to the surface. It doesn't cost much in terms of energy to get the oil out, and you, you get a lot of energy bang for your buck, as it were. But when you come to something like tar sands, when you have to sort of boil the sands to get the energy out, you're, you're getting a, a very large amount of, uh, you have a very large cost for the energy you produce. And, and to, the extent, to the extent with shale, oil and gas, that's also true in that you have to do the fracking and you have to pump water in and sand in and then um, transport everything. So, so it is a higher cost process than Saudi oil, for example. Then the, the, the sort of broader thought really is that why did we have an industrial revolution and, and escape the kind of Malthusian limits on, on the economy that we suffered up to about 1700? One reason is, is cheap energy. We replaced 
humans and animals to do most of our labor um, with um, carbon fuels. And that was an enormous boost to the economy over the last three or 400 years. If it, if it gets more expensive to do that, then we might see economic growth constrained. Um, as I say, it looks as if shale gas is getting cheaper to produce, and there's a lot more of it than we thought at the time I was writing the book. So I think that that point, while not completely negated, is less of an issue in the short term than uh, I thought it was a couple of years ago. Oh, well, I mean, suppose if it's less of an issue in the short term, then that will fit yeah. the politicians perfectly, won't it really? I mean, <laughs> they certainly in, in the UK, anyway, our, our politicians seem to be in a bizarre situation caught between the need to cut spending and in some cases doing that, but also promoting growth and sometimes attempting to do both simultaneously. I mean, the current coalition government in the UK will literally have one spokesman on one segment of the news saying we've got to cut spending and then talking about growth figures. And the Chancellor was making a speech yesterday about recovery in the economy. And it, for me personally, it's a bit of a manifestation of some of the limits that I think we're coming up against with the endless growth model. It's very hard to be sure about that because if you go back to the 1970s, which I'm old enough to remember, there were lots of um, predictions about the limits of growth back then, and we've had you know, 30 or 40 years of um, fairly decent growth since then. You know, a lot of modern products require less in uh, uh, terms of energy than old products used to, and individually, you'd be interested to know that energy use per head in the UK peaked, I think, in 1978. Um, I may be one or two years out, but it's about that level. So oil um, demand in the developed world has is been falling in recent years. It's the developing world where the, the big increases in oil demand have been occurring. And we have been able to um, find new and innovative ways to produce stuff that weren't possible before. So there are things coming through, for example, like 3D printing, which may make a, di a difference in the future. Um, there are things like um, new advances in medicine that may make it easier for people to work better and longer hours. So I wouldn't want to dismiss all innovation altogether because people who've done so in the past um, have failed. But I think the key limit to growth for the Western world is this population thing that in the end, if you don't have as many workers as you had before, it's very hard to make the economy bigger. And that, this is a big, huge shift, really, because for the last three or four hundred years, population has been rising pretty steadily. You have to go back to the, the Middle Ages, to the Black Death even, to see um, times when populations have fallen. And, and that's what's likely to happen, quite significant falls in the likes of Japan, Germany and Italy over the next 30 or 40 years. We saw the um, role that the housing market played in the crash of 0708. Um, typically, you know, the biggest issue really was the subprime scandal in the US. What do you make of the UK government, who currently seem to be juicing the housing market with various schemes, uh, even though for many people housing is unaffordable? And some have argued that we're looking at, with rising house prices, just going into you know another housing bubble. I, I think it's a genuine risk. If we look at measures of house price valuations, which the economist does, we're overvalued both relative to um, incomes and both and relative to rents. And we never got to a period of being undervalued, despite the fact that we did have a housing setback. So what do we need to happen? We need more houses to be built and more uh, flats to be built. And that's a criticism you can make of uh, government policy and of um, the austerity policy, that they cut back on capital spending, um, investment spending, which is the most useful bit of government spending, and didn't cut back so much on current spending. So 
the best way to deal with the housing problem in the in the UK is simply to build more houses. We've got a have had a rising population. That's what we need to do, not prop up existing house prices. Now, this is obviously very, very hard to call, uh, but based on what we've seen so far in the global financial crisis, what might we expect going forward? I mean, we've seen a lot of drama and upheaval, or are we looking at perhaps stagnation? I mean, do you think we're we're over the worst of the, the, the big shocks? I think we're probably the worst of the big shocks, but it, I, I think our out look is more Japanese than um, people realize. So we may get the occasional period of decent growth and then we'll we'll slip back again. So uh, a long period in which you know, people are perfectly prosperous in Japan. It's not a, not a disaster by any case, but a very nice place to live for many people. But um, you don't get the kind of growth you did before and you don't get the kind of um, um, new industries being created that you get before. Uh, and that makes it, of course, difficult for um, governments to balance their budgets and difficult for people to feel that prosperous. Uh, and I do worry about a, another factor, which is the sort of um, widening inequality in, in the Western world. So if you, if you feel that the system was um, brought down by the financial sector and you, we still have ended up with a system where the financial sector has been propped up by the government, that um, they're still earning a lot more than the rest of us, uh, that's an endlessly dissatisfying prospect. And I think one of the reasons that you're seeing uh, rise in the vote of extremist parties in, in parts of Europe is that people feel the sort of elite has been running policy for the last 20 or 30 years and that they've um, been captured by you know, special interests and not been concerned enough about the, the ordinary person. And the danger of that is, of course, that um, more and more people turn to the extremists because they seem to... Um, be the most willing to change policy away from the consensus that you know centre left and centre right policy uh, parties tend to follow. Well, with ongoing austerity, uh, widening income disparity, as you mentioned, um, worries about the future, pensions, how people are going to provide for themselves, people feeling that there's nothing they can do, they, they save, but you know they're not they're losing money in the long run. I know you're not on here as a financial advisor, I realise that, but for Concerned listeners, what sort of closing thoughts would you offer? I think you should be realistic about the future. Do not assume that you are going to get rapid pay increases in future years. Do not take on um, the kind of debt that you might have done you know, 15 or 20 years ago because you can't uh, count on being able to pay it back with the ease that you might have done in the 80s and 90s. Um, and I think also you should uh, look to diversify the sources of income as much as possible. So um, if you um, have a job, make sure that you keep up with your skills, make sure that you think about if you lost your job, where you might um, be able to be employed elsewhere. Because I think the way that employment is changing is that people are having these sort of dreaded phrase, portfolio careers, where they... They no longer work as one employer for a long period, but they uh, put on contracts and work in different companies at different times. So you, know, you need to think of yourself as an individual, almost like a business. What, what are the skills that I have to offer? Uh, how can I protect myself against a downturn? And I think that's something probably people weren't used to doing um, 20 or 30 years ago. Excellent. Okay, well, in closing, Philip, uh, perhaps you'd just like to tell listeners about uh, your new book, which is just out, called The Last Vote, The Threats to Western Democracy, and if you've got a website, and anything else you'd like to share. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. Uh, yes, it is out uh, from um, 
Alan Lane, the publishers, and it, it touches on some of the themes we've discussed here, which is that um, people have been disillusioned by politicians, that they many, many of the decisions that uh, even MPs take have been moved away from them and to technocrats, central bankers, the IMF and people like that, and that this is causing enormous um, disillusionment and the danger is that people switch off from politics altogether, in which case their interests won't be considered, or that they turn to extremist parties, uh, as we've seen in Greece. So it's sort of an attempt to be a wake-up call for people that um, if you despise politicians and you ignore politics, then you'll suffer at your leisure. Uh, more people need to get involved. More people need to have their voices heard. More people need to make sure they vote, um, because if you don't vote, nobody will listen to you. So you, we can no longer recapture the enthusiasm that we had when we made our first vote, and we see that happening still in countries which get democracy today. But you can treat every vote as if it's your last vote, that if you vote this time, you might get stuck with a person you vote for. So think that it, you might have got stuck with Vladimir Putin or Hugo Chavez or someone, and don't vote for a protest or a joke candidate because they might get in. Excellent. Well, Philip Coggan, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you very much for having me. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website, that's LegalizeFreedom.com, Legalize-Freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy, and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.